Hello, everyone. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. I'm your host, uh, Jordan Smart. I usually do these kinds of uh, goal post field goal animation, but I'm trying to uh, get out of that, you know, growing myself. But anyway, we're so glad that you guys were able to join us for this episode. A lot has gone on just in a week, which is incredibly surprising. So we want to make sure we get right into it. Before we kick off our discussion, we just want to welcome back for the second time Christian. He is a writer at the Knights First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. He's also a, a politics writer. You can see his um, articles. Uh, where can we see your articles? I, I know there's a number of places, but I want to make sure I get those names right. Uh, wherever anyone wants to pay me to write, I'll write. To be GQ, Vanity Fair, um, New York Magazine, and, you know, so it's, I run the gamut. So thank God it, I have work to do. Excellent. So he's a very knowledgeable and busy man. So we're so glad he was able to take the time out today uh, for us. And uh, I know everyone is doing okay, and I would love to check in, but we do want to make sure we just grab at every topic that we're going to hit today. So the election is obviously still in full swing. Um, and actually, sorry, before I get that, if you are joining us on Facebook, feel free to say hello. Tell us where you're watching from. And we also have our podcast for Affirmative Interaction on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And of course, we're also streaming on YouTube. So without further ado, let's get into it. The election is in full swing, and with every election, it comes with a debate. One could also call this debate a debacle. Thank you very much, Mike. That was an incredible way to uh, put the headline uh, in an interesting way. And it is, I would say, there are so many words, but some of them are inappropriate. And I can't say them because my mom might be watching. But it was sort of a mess. And that's just not my opinion. A lot of political analysts have said that this is one of the worst debates that we have seen in a long time, if ever. So just to give you a little taste in case you missed it, we're going to watch a little bit of, of that debate right now. Uh, would you just shut up, man? <laughs> <laughs> Will you Who shut is up, man? Listen, in, China in, ate your lunch, uh, Joe. And you're the, the worst way, you president America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Me... I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just want to make sure. I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, not first in your class. I want to make sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how to do that. You know what? You're not true. You're doing it. You're going to have true. Gentlemen. I hate to raise my voice, but I see it seems to be, why shouldn't I be different than the two of you? I will tell you very simply, we won the election. Elections have consequences. We have the Senate, we have the White House, and we have a phenomenal nominee, respected by all. The American people have a right to have a say in who the Supreme Court nominee is, and that say occurs when they vote for a United States senators and when they vote for the president of the United States. They're not going to get that chance now because we're in the middle of an election already. He panicked or he just looked at the stock market, one of the two, because guess what? A lot of people died. 
and a lot more are going to die unless he gets a lot smarter. If we would have listened to you, the country would have been left wide open. Millions of people would have died, not 200,000, and one person is too much. It's China's fault. It should have never happened. They stopped it from going in, but it was China's fault. This guy will close down the whole country and destroy our country. Our country is coming back incredibly well, setting records as it does it. We don't need somebody to come in and say, let's shut it down. We handed him a booming economy. He blew it. We have a higher deficit with China now than we did before. We have the highest deficit trade deficit China with ate Mexico. Your lunch, All right, ate 10%. Ten percent. And, and, China ate your no, lunch, Joe. And but, no wonder okay. your son goes in and he takes out he takes out billions oh. of dollars, takes out billions of dollars to manage. He makes millions of dollars. And also, Simply while we're at true. it, why Simply is it just out of curiosity? The mayor of Moscow's wife gave your son three and a half million dollars. What did he true. do to deserve it? That what did he do with Barista to deserve one hundred eighty-three thousand dollars? None of that is true. Not none of that is true. Oh, really? He totally didn't get three and a half. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure. and? to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, but do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what, what, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them... What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists. White supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This own is a FBI left wing. Director this is a left wing problem. White supremacists. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not militia. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, I'm, it's not like a, a joke I'm doing. I started coughing right when the video ended. It, it's just honestly symbolic of how I was feeling last night. Um, so, guys, please, as I recover, let me know what are your first reactions to this debate so we can get started here. <laughs> Stand back. <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, uh, okay, so jokes aside, jokes aside, jokes aside, obviously disaster. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me, and I, I just want to make sure that this gets mentioned, and I'm sure that we all can agree on this on some, on some level, um, is how the debate in some ways is being framed, um, like in the aftermath. Um, our one of our friends, Corey Johnson, wrote a really good uh, article, kind of explaining his his frustrations with that, with the way that certain media outlets have kind of portrayed it. And I think one of the concerns that I really have that I've seen the media do this on a number of occasions is um, kind of both sides what we saw, right? And I can't always tell if it's an attempt to 
portray themselves as objective, as bipartisan or nonpartisan. Um, but I think what can be frustrating is when I'm watching this debate, I'm, I'm watching with Esther, we spend 90 minutes of our lives that we cannot get back. And we clearly see that it was a political tactic on Donald Trump's part to completely turn this uh, debate into just utter chaos, right? We see these efforts happening for the entire 90 minutes excuse me, for the entire 90 minutes. And we see Chris Wallace trying to interject on multiple occasions to add some civility in. And immediately we see media turn it into like, oh, this was a chaotic both sides kind of story. And, and I feel like when you frame the story that way, you seem less subjective to me. You seem less... Um, a part of the system to me when when you take that approach and just calling a spade a spade. Like in, in this particular moment, there is no both sides, right? We, we saw an effort happening from a particular individual who made it a, a concerted effort to hijack the debate because he knew he had no substance. And it would really mean a lot if I saw more people, particularly from CNN, um, MSNBC particularly, to just call it like it is, like we we all watched it, and when you try to then frame it differently, it can feel very frustrating because it's like your headlines are not matching what we just saw less than a couple of minutes ago, and I we we've seen that sort of tactics happen before, and and it just fuels when people watch these debates and they see the headlines or someone sees a clip when they weren't able to watch it, and then it comes across as like oh. Here we go again, 2016, just utter chaos. I can't deal with politics anymore. I'm gonna stay home and just not vote because they see these antics and it all just feels messy. And that is Trump's tactic. He wants the political stage to feel messy so that people can become numb and apathetic toward it, which will result in them not going to vote. And I feel like I need to see more people in mainstream media in particular to just name that because we see it happening and it's frustrating to not see people who have that platform, like really call it what it is. Christian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you nailed it really because uh, one thing that pundits do and one thing that uh, anchors and people who are professional commentators on TV, they get paid to create drama for their respective outlets. One thing that this particular election makes it different from prior elections is that as a result of COVID-19, the candidates are not out campaigning. They're not having huge rallies. They're not calling each other names from all these in front of all these massive audiences, maybe Trump is to an extent. But because COVID has sucked the air out of a lot of coverage in the past few months, you know, the minute there is one opportunity for confrontation, Trump is going to take that and run with it because he knows that because Biden tends to take the high road, because Biden doesn't like to dignify any of his statements, you know, he almost feels trapped. He has no way to punch back. And the minute he has one opportunity to punch back, which he hasn't had for months, you know, he goes, runs and takes it. And unfortunately, the media being captive to this, uh, this uh, 
kind of dynamic where they love to see that tension, you know, where they love to see the candidates going at each other. They haven't had it in so long. So the minute they see that tension manifests itself on the screen, they say, it was utter chaos. Oh my goodness, we've never seen anything like it. Of course you've never seen anything like it because it's the first time you have a debate where the candidates haven't seen each other for who knows how long, you know, and they haven't had a chance to face off in such a public way. And uh, so, yeah, I, I totally agree that uh, it, it, there's no reason to both sides this. The reality is, is that one candidate was melting down, shouting, interrupting, getting red in the face, hurling insults, bringing up family, bringing up children, uh, while the other candidate literally was calling him a clown. He was telling him to shut up. He was basically treating him the way that no president, sitting incumbent president, has ever been treated on a on a campaign stage. And to me, that was extremely clarifying. That was extremely welcome. Because if there's one thing that uh, the current president doesn't get a lot of is someone telling them, no, sir, you cannot do that. You cannot break the rules of the game here. And he broke many rules at last night's debate. And, and the fact that he got that pushback too from the moderator was a really good thing for the public to see because Trump is not used to public accountability in such a way. And the fact that he was getting it both from Biden and from the moderator, it was important. It was important because uh, just the public isn't used to that. And the fact that uh, regular people who are not used to politics saw that, uh, forget the, the pundits for a second, but the fact that people like you and me or people that aren't used to you know, being professional commentators on politics were able to see that disconnect, how there were two totally different candidates. Uh, I think it was, it was good. It was clarifying. It was, and it was important for the public to see. And I hope we see more of that in the coming weeks. I have to say really quick too, I think when Chris Wallace came in at different moments, and I think as the night came on or, or the night moved on, he started to, I guess, in a way, interject himself more and more. And he would specifically tell Trump, hey, I need you to be quiet. I mean, even in the clip that we saw, it, it was amazing <laughs> to just see a moderator raise their voice and just say, please stop. Like I'm trying to do my job. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to moderate this debate. And I think once Trump started to go after Chris Wallace, it honestly kind of reminds me of watching episodes of the WWE when I was a kid, when two wrestlers would fight and then one guy goes after the referee. And it makes it so much easier to root for the guy that's just playing by the rules. If that makes sense. So I think once Trump just started going after Chris Wallace, it didn't look good for him. Cause it's like, so you're barking at Biden and you're barking at the person that is not on either side. Then how can we really say that you're going about it, about this in the most presidential way possible? Yep, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and, and the fact that one thing that Biden did that was I thought effective and that Trump didn't do once was, was address the public. He would look at the camera and talk to people and address them. Hey, look, you know, he's, this other guy is talking at you. I am talking to you. And this is why, you know, we need to move forward and do the things that we need to get ahead as a nation. And, and, and during prime time with people that perhaps, you know, are having a hard time these days understanding our politics, it's important for 
uh, you know, uh, someone who aspires to higher office to just speak to you and speak to your needs. And I think he was extremely effective to, to do that. And, um, and, and I hope we see more of that, to be honest. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting with the whole conversation of, of what, what Trump was trying to do, because he wasn't really speaking to America or about America. Like his whole evening was sent, spent on trying to belittle anything that Joe Biden is doing or saying. Joe Biden as an individual. I mean, every time Joe Biden would talk any kind of plan, which like this isn't me saying Joe Biden did a great job last night, but I think he was trying to say, here's what I want to do. Here's the things that, that worked under the Obama administration or my time in politics. Like, let's let's move forward with some of these plans I have. But pretty much Trump, like, I didn't hear him make points about like, this is what I'm planning. He even said like, I'm going to make healthcare better and cheaper. And we all know that his healthcare plans were, were couldn't get through Senate because nobody wanted them. You know, it, it, it's just interesting that that people kind of, I see people on Facebook, at least on my feed, kind of defending Trump today. And I'm like, my guy didn't even come with any information. He called he called the lefts the socialists all night, you know, like he kind of attacked it, tried to make Biden out to be this guy that hates America and hates the police and hates, you know, middle class suburbians and, and he's part of the radical left. But it was really interesting. If you watch typically with debates, there's gonna be a back and forth about ideas and Trump's back and forth was just about trying to de defame or or attack a character of another person. And it's funny because people were like, this was all bad. And I'm like, well, we just watched Joe Biden in how many debates that didn't go like this, that were civil discourse back and forth. Maybe there was a little bit of like, you know, angst and, you know, trying to downplay someone's policies, but not to this degree that we're seeing with Trump where it's just like, you're the dumbest person in your class. You graduate, you know, your, your child is a drug addict, like really like weird low shots that actually have nothing to do with literally anything other than trying to give people this negative perception. And, I, and I, I applauded Biden because he really just tried to paint a negative picture of Trump's politics more than he did of Trump's, you know, personal, his personal like life and experience or existence. Yeah, I think, um, you know, really good thoughts from all of you all and, you know, uh, not to be like the, you know, the philosophical guy, but I, I just really think that this is, this is a really important moment for our democracy, you know, and I don't want to sound like the alarmist, but I don't think that I can state that any clearer than that. Um, we we are on the brink of either trying to recover some modicum of decency in our political discourse, in our governing, in our in our political, uh, you know, in our politics. Period. Um, we're on the brink of, of of really losing any chance at any of that being recovered. Um, another four days, let alone another four years, past January twenty first of this president, uh, runs the risk of really doing some extremely long-term damage to, you know, to people all across this country. And um, I think that last night couldn't have made that contrast more clear between the two persons who were on the stage. And, um, you know, we can get into the 
it's hard to even get into the ins and outs of what was said on any particular topic because again you had one person who had clearly prepared to state some things to the american people and joe biden and another person who had came who had come you know reading from their twitter burner accounts like that's literally like, literally it sounded like a, a live burner account on stage <laughs> But that's literally like Donald Trump's official Twitter account, actually. It's, it's probably was a mild version of what he tweets on a daily basis. Um, he literally just sounded like the dude that you just want to block from social media. Like, that's what that's what it was the whole time. And he's the sitting president of the U.S. I mean, to not be able to do, you know, just basic, decent things. Um, it's very simple to denounce white supremacy. Like, you... I mean, of all the things that, you know, he lies and pretends about, he can't even lie about being about not being a racist. It's like that's the one thing he's like, no, nah, I'm gonna really own that. Of all the things that he doesn't own, he wants to own that sort of in full, you know, in flying colors or whatever. So yeah, I just think it was a really it was a it was a bad moment. Um, you know, I I think a lot of people were sort of dragging Chris, Chris Wallace. I think Chris Wallace was in a bit of a tough spot for sure. Um, if someone shows up, I mean, debates are only as, you know, debate rules are only as good as the debaters. You know, there's this overinflated sense of what a moderator, I think, can, what people think a moderator can do in those kinds of moments. I mean, short of like shutting down the entire debate, I don't really know what what, what more Wallace could have done to not look like he was being, you know, that, you know, cause then the, then the whole narrative is, oh, well, Chris Wallace, you know, showed up and, you know, he had something against the president. And mm -hmm. so he shut the debate down and blah, 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 blah. He was trying to toe the line between keeping the debate going and trying to, to reel this dude in. And it was just, it was a pretty impossible task. And so on the flip side with Joe Biden, I think because of the way that Trump showed up, yeah, I think it was hard for him. To, it was hard for me to to follow anybody's train of thought because at any given moment, like there were five things on the floor, you know. So it's like in the middle of, of, of Vice President Biden answering a question, you know, Trump is subtweet burner accounting three or four other things, like right in the middle of a sentence. So what do you say? Do do I respond to this lunatic? Do I answer the question? Does the moderator even remember? Like there were several times when Chris Wallace didn't even remember what the question was because of what was happening in between the two of them. Um, it, it was a tough watch, man. And so, I mean, I could probably say a lot more, but back to my philosophical soapbox, this is a really critical time in our democracy. And the, the last quick thing I'll say is I'm always cracked up by how they talk to these quote unquote undecided voters after the debate. Mm. And I think I was watching CNN briefly afterwards and they were talking to these undecided voters in Ohio. First of all, undecided voter, how? That's my first question. But secondly, um, they polled, there was maybe about 15 of them in a the room at least. And so they polled and they say, you know, if you think Joe Biden won, raise your hand. And one person raised their hand. If you think Donald Trump won, raise your hand. Two people raise their hand. Yeah. So it's like, so what are the other 12 of you even, like, what are you doing? They're undecided. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, but it plays into, again, this whole narrative that we're talking about of they're both terrible. And it's 2016 all over again. It's the both sides <laughs> isms 
and all oh, they're just you know two sides of the same coin doesn't really matter it's all gonna suck anyway blah 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 and then they just secretly vote for trump you know so uh, i think that people need to wake up and understand how critical this moment is and the, the the truest thing that was said on the stage was actually said by donald trump last night elections have consequences and he didn't mean it the way i mean it but it was the most true thing that was said on the stage yeah one thing that i do appreciate about i guess the younger generation of more liberal politicians who are not necessarily or even very much in the tent for Joe Biden is that they understand how critical this moment is. And, you know, you have people like Andrea Ocasio-Cortez, whose own, uh, you know, Green New Deal got trashed at the debate last night, even by Joe Biden. Yeah. Let that face her because she understands that this moment is extremely critical and it's a choice. The choice is clear between a democracy and outright fascism. She said it, and 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 the fact that you know there are people who are considered, as Trump likes to say, the radical left, who very much think that it is necessary for Biden to be elected over the alternative. You know, it, 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 at least it gives me a little bit of hope for for the younger generation because, you know. AOC can get on Instagram and talk to two million people at a time, and 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 that can have a much bigger impact than a debate that young people may not watch, and 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 the fact that there are people who are carrying on this message. You know, I have friends and acquaintances that are doing this work of talking to voters, talking to peers, and and letting them know that not voting is not an option because voting get to the alternative, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that they are, they have that clarity of, of purpose and, and, and seeing this moment for what it is. And, and I really hope yeah. that that has an impact on, on folks at the time of voting. I, I have to agree and just piggyback, piggyback slightly off of what you're saying, because uh, especially with what Mike was saying in terms of how people were responding to the debate, those undecided voters, I think the best thing this debate can do is just clarify. You know, we've been saying that a lot. Um, it can clarify this picture of who should be our leader for the next four years a little bit more. And I think, unfortunately, at the same time, some people have already made up their mind and there's really nothing that is going to change their mind. And I'm also hoping that people do take the, I would say the right things away from this debate that they need to. Don't try to frame this as both of these guys are terrible. See what how this debate happened. This debate would have not gone the way it did if Trump just acted presidential. To me, that was the first thing I, I, I noticed. I'm like, that's the one thing I cannot forget. Trump is the reason this whole thing was derailed and to, I would say, communicate any other reality I think it's false. Yeah, that, oh, sorry, go ahead, Esther. Oh, oh thanks. I, I, I think you're right, Jordan. I think that ideally the goal mm -hmm. of a debate is to provide clarity. I think that in hindsight and after hearing people kind of reflect and debrief on the debate that I agree, it was definitely dragged down by Trump. But 
in the moment watching it, I'm not gonna lie, it really felt like a lot of white male mediocrity hitting me from all angles all at one time. And it was very difficult. <laughs> it was very difficult to, in the moment to like really parse through and determine like, okay, no, 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 this is not coming from everybody. This is, there, this is specifically coming from one person and it's impacting everybody around. And I feel like that really lessened the ability of this debate to provide clarity for anybody because I, it was very unclear. Every everything about it was very unclear. All of the all the responses were unclear. And I definitely think, yes, you can see right off the bat that Joe Biden kept his composure a lot better than Trump did. But I still think that because of all of the interrupting, everything will happen. Although I really Part of me was like, you know, Donald Trump, like you couldn't just be prepared for that and just yeah. like, focus, focus, like stay true to the course. But like, because we all knew that was going to happen. But um, I feel like because of everything that was going on, like the actual art of just debating was just lost on both sides. And neither, I mean, Joe Biden had a couple moments where I think that he did come through with a very with a strong point, but I think that a lot of what he said also came across as muddled too, because of everything that was going on. And so there just wasn't like I can't come. I didn't walk away from the debate with like, wow, this is that point that he made that was strong, that was good, that's gonna stick, that's gonna carry with people that we needed to carry with. I also feel like there was moments where he was very clear, but I was just personally very disappointed. And I mean, partly mm. that's just like my politics, but like, I wish he had been so loud and proud about not wanting to defund the police. I know why he has to do it, but I was like, yeah. I, I said it quieter. Like, I understand. <laughs> I understand you don't want to defund the police. I just feel like can we, I don't know, try to tie in both sides a little bit here and work around that. Or even with the Supreme Court nomination, like it wasn't even brought up that the Republicans blocked the last, like we didn't right. even say that. Like nobody on the stage even brought up the fact that everything the Republicans are saying right now about the Supreme Court nomination is the opposite of what they were saying in 2016 with Obama's Supreme Court nomination. Yeah. And just a couple things, and the Green New Deal, like there were just moments where I'm like, I understand like your, your treat. It just, I think in some ways Trump's um, tactic of trying to pushing the far left, this far left identity on Joe Biden that's not true. And then forcing him to be nonsense so proudly. Like he, he got cornered in that a few times last night. And I don't yeah. think that that's gonna play out well for more progressive voters that I mean we hope most of us are on board to just be like we're voting for them no matter what but there are definitely some people that aren't there. Well I, I would probably want to point out just a couple of things. Um it, just to piggyback off of what Esther just said. I think when I was watching that debate and, and I don't know if it was just my um like frustration levels, I, I personally hate it. it. It is a major pet peeve when in a discussion, like someone is continually cutting someone off. Like when it's happening to me, like my blood boils. When it's happening to other people, I hate it. And I, I know that Biden was probably prepped into saying, you know Trump is gonna be a jerk 
He's going to come out with the, with the antics. He's going to make it a slugfest. You got to stay composed. But, and, and I don't know if it's just my immaturity showing right now. I did feel a little sense of like, like cathartic experience when like finally someone told Trump to shut up. Like it's like I, I needed to hear someone tell Trump, you need to shut up because he, he talks too much. He, he, he's loud. He is, he's disrespectful. He's a bully. And like, yeah, he's a clown. Like we, I, I, there is a side of me that's like, yo, we, we got to start calling this dude what he is, man. And, and I know that that is perhaps not the most professional approach, but there is a side of where in the back of mind, I was like, dang, Biden, you probably shouldn't go in that direction. But I was like, thank you, bro. Like someone finally told this man to shut up. The, the other thing that I would say in, in response to things that I think Esther made a great point is, uh, Trump likes to, in, in Biden's efforts, he, he was trying to either paint him as a radical left or someone that is losing the radical left and form, forming the conversation as a very black and white, very rigid approach, like you are either radical or you're a right-leaning Democrat. Um, but they're like, there are a, a number of, of moments where even AOC went on Twitter and clarified that um, Biden met with her and Bernie and a couple of other progressives where they worked together to work on Joe Biden's climate change, um, his policy regarding that. But that nuance is never uh, brought up because it's like Trump's trying to force it down as Biden being a socialist. But that collaborative effort that Biden is trying to present as something that is still possible, something that he ran on entirely, like I know how to work with people, that message, it, it couldn't come out. Right. Or even the moments where he said that um, I do support law and order with justice, which I thought that was a, that was a save right there, because you, you don't want to come across as like like a Richard Nixon kind of a person. But he didn't have a chance to expand on that. Right. Even even in his efforts where he says that he wanted to reform the police, I, I don't agree with it at all. But. I can comprehend his line of thinking, right? But he didn't have a chance to explain the, the, the policies and procedures and how he wanted to do it, right? Like, I don't disagree with Biden when he says that he wants to bring social workers and psychiatrists into that field, re reallocating uh, funds so that we're, we're essentially getting the same kind of results in, in a very particular manner. And I think that is what is, is frustrating that is Trump's method right there. He he does not want Biden to have an opportunity to add clarity to policies that make sense because Trump has no policies that make sense. When Chris Wallace directly asked him, you told us that you were gonna reveal your healthcare plan in October, um, where is it? Any updates, where is it supposed to be? Nothing came up. There, 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 there are no details. All Trump keeps saying is that it's going to be better. It's going to be better. So he's running on on utter, like, empty rhetoric. There's nothing implied there, and that I think is what is frustrating. When I see people like Logan said, people think that Trump won. I'm like, what did he win? What is so appealing to someone 
that is spewing disrespectful nonsense to an individual, coming at his son who overcame a drug addiction, coming at his intelligence. But what is, is that all it takes for people that are Trump supporters, someone that is sticking it to the left, owning the lives? Like, is that all that it takes for you to feel like someone's won? And it really shows a deeper reflection of like the consciousness of our country where you see that a bully is represented as a powerful leader. And that I think is also concerning because if you, if you didn't watch that debate and it didn't trigger something um, like convict you on some emotional spiritual level and say like, I cannot align myself with that person. Then like you have to do some self-reflection because that shouldn't be appealing to you. I think real quick your note about nuance. I honestly think part of that too is just like the format of the debate. Like two minutes just really is not a long enough time. Yeah. I think we just need to like say that yeah. out. Like people, we we need more time for them to actually dive into the the nitty gritty of like what they actually plan to do. That's part of why all these debates are so disappointing. We usually don't learn anything new because they just have two minutes, so they hit on all the talking points we said already. Yeah. I just want to make a quick point also to Adrian's point about uh, having seen Biden calling the president a clown and telling him to shut up. I went to put up a, a, a mild defense of those tactics. I think they're important because the president has already debased his office so much that even in the Oval Office, he is calling people from other countries shithole countries and yeah. he's done so many terrible things with the power of his office and he has denigrated so many norms he has trashed the rule of law and constitutional order and etc 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 we don't need to go through the laundry list but uh, to the extent that biden uh with those remarks showed the president and his term what it has represented for many people i think uh, you know it was high time for somebody to call that out. Obviously, he didn't name policies that have been so harmful for many people in many communities. Uh, but in a sense, you know, the fact that he that he put him in his place with just rhetoric and with a little bit of vulgarity, if you will, uh, it just shows that we've had we've had a vulgar president for almost one on four years. And, uh, and, and, and that vulgarity has gotten us to where we are right now. Many who voted for Trump, they said, oh, he just speaks his mind. He is the way he is. Well, somebody just gave him a little bit of his own medicine. So why are you complaining? Yeah. Now, that's yeah. precisely what got him into office. The fact that he spoke his mind, you know, and uh, somebody spoke his mind at him. We can't really complain. He was just fighting fire with fire. Yeah. No, that's really good. And I, I wanted to point out uh, another quick reflection. I think, and they actually showed that, um, you know, they always have those reaction meters during debates. And I thought a really one of the biggest takeaways, at least for me, you know, outside of the muck of what happened, but I think an actual tangible thing we can take away is that Joe Biden very effectively, one of the most effective things he did last night was he effectively positioned himself um, in, in a in a categorically different place than Donald Trump as it pertains to voting in the election. And so when he was talking directly about 
the power of your right to vote and the fact that you as the voter have the power to determine, you know, who is in power and, and who wins this election and who gets these seats of office. And then also said that regardless of the result, I will respect your decision because it's up to you what happens, not me or him. And Trump, you know, very um, strategically, and he's been on this campaign for a while, but but he he's very clearly been trying to put out these seeds of doubt around the election process, um, around the the whole voting you know process as a whole, um, whether it's mail-in voting or or whatever the case may be, and that actually started. You know, we, it's hard to sometimes remember all of the things that, that Trump has done, but it actually started, you know, shortly after his inauguration in 2017, when he had, you know, that hack, Chris Kovac, start this whole commission around voter fraud, and he found nothing, <laughs> and it, it ultimately led to nothing. But, but Trump, from the very beginning of coming into office, has started to have this this campaign of figuring out okay, now that I sort of rigged the system, how can I completely hack it so that it's never the same from this point forward and I can set up a narrative where I'm the only person in this process who's trustworthy. So if I tell you that the election system is, 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 is all rigged and it's messed up and that you know the voting results are fake news and, you know, I, I, the, the winner isn't declared until I declare the winner, as opposed to it being independently verified, as Joe Biden said he'd abide by. I think that was effective that Biden made it clear that, you know, I'm here to participate in this process along with you. And he's here to create a dictatorial process, which ensures his power in perpetuity. And that's what he's here for. And so um, and 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 you could see in the reactions that both men and women undecided voters, that, that was their most positive reaction to anybody's response during the whole debate. So I'm hoping that that's, he continues to hammer that narrative home because I think that's a really important distinction that we literally have a sitting president right now who's trying to see doubt in the entire process so that he can try a power grab to stay in power when he hopefully loses in a pretty convincing result. So... Um, I, I really liked that Biden effectively showed that uh, contrast between the two of them. Very good. Um, so Trump did, we, we do want to address really quick that Trump did make comments on white supremacy. Um, if anyone wants to speak on their reaction to him telling the Proud Boys to, what was it, stand, stand, back, stand by. back? Stand back and stand by. So, Logan, I, I feel like you have a little bit of reaction Well, it to was that. interesting. Did, I did like have to, share to that turn with on um, the news today, and, and they were asking Trump about this again. Um, and he said, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure who these Proud Boys are. I, uh, yeah, we need to stand by and let the – law enforcement kind of do their jobs. But I think it's really telling. We've been saying this for a long time. Um, and I say we as in people, but also, you know, obviously BIPOC in, in the United States have been saying like Trump's racist. He is racist because of who he puts in to support him. And you don't have rhetoric, rhetoric like that in your mind unless you've been 
told to to speak to these things. You don't just think like, oh, stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys. Like you think someone says, will you denounce white supremacy? That should be like a really easy, yeah, of, of right. course. We're not, you know, we're not supporting some of these ideas. And I think the 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 fear of this is you shouldn't trust anyone that's willing to put um, emphasis on a vote over a human life. And that's essentially what you're doing. He's saying these votes matter more to me than the lives that they're against, the people that they hate, um, the Americans that they don't want here. They say, in a, he says, in order for me to win the election, I need the white supremacy vote. So I'm not going to denounce the white supremacists because they're my path. And we've seen that they're his path because he's also, I mean, Steve Bannon worked for him. Stephen Miller writes immigration law for him. I mean, these are vocal white supremacists um, that we know about. And Trump's not going to denounce white supremacy because he's not going to denounce himself. That's just kind of the reality of that with this guy and not to be the white guy to talk about white supremacy. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the most telling thing about that moment is actually right before the president. Yep. That's the only time in that entire debate that I can remember he actually looked like he didn't know what to do. Like right when he looked this shocking, so I feel like you didn't, nobody on your team was like, they're gonna ask you this question. But like when he was asked straight up to denounce white supremacy, he had a moment where visually you could see he did not know what to do. He was yeah. stumbling, stuttering over his words. That to me is very scary. Like that you, like, I don't, just like you lie about every you lie about everything. Just lie, just lie, and say you denounce white supremacy. We know you really don't, <laughs> but it's just like that's the one lie that you that you couldn't tell, and you literally froze in the moment, and then you stumbled out. I don't, whatever. It just it was just that to me was more telling than even what he said next. It's just that he completely froze up and did and had no idea what to do. Mm. Guys, yeah, I think. I was just gonna say really, really quick. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it was all well said. Ironically, you know, Rick Santorum, who's an abysmal panelist on CNN and just spews a bunch of ridiculous stuff, he ironically, and he didn't do this on purpose, said probably the truest thing he's ever said, and, and probably the truest thing about why Trump reacted to the question the way he did. And I retweeted this. He essentially said that Chris Wallace put uh, Trump in a box with the question about condemning white supremacists, saying he knows the president doesn't like to, quote, say something bad about people who support him. Uh -huh. So, so I mean, he, he kind of let the, I mean, we sort of, we knew that, but I mean, he kind of let the cat out of the bag there a little bit. And um, yeah, so as Logan was saying, he's not going to, um, the truest thing that Trump has ever said was after Charlottesville when he said they're good people on both sides. And what's true about that comment is that there are a lot of, in particular, white people in this country that believe that because the, the topic of racism, and we have this weird thing where we say we're going to talk about race when we really are trying to, when we, we need to be talking about racism. Race is a social construct. Racism is the topic. So, um, you know, because there are lots of people who do believe that, oh, oh, so, you know, Auntie so and so's racist, but she's great. You know, she's just got a little racism, casual, you know, drop the N word here and there, but, you know, she's great, you know. And, and then, you know, there's some, you know, there's some good, 
you know, your black folk on the other side, you know, Ben Carson and, you know, uh, Ben Carson. So it's like that, that's sort of what they believe, you know. Um, there's on, on either side of that conversation. Yeah, you know, we nobody really like we shouldn't say the N word publicly or whatever. But if, you know, Auntie Susie says it privately, she's a good person. She's just racist, you know. So and, and that a lot of people have that belief, you know, and, and so that's built within it, it's hard for them him to be able to admit that no, like you know, white supremacy being evil is like that's non-negotiable, bro. Like there's no two sides to that. It's just mm -hmm. a yeah, that's wrong, period. And there's no more discussion on it. But it's a very American thing to be extremely long-suffering with racism. And Trump's just the, you know, unpolished embodiment of that. So it wasn't very surprising how he reacted. And I wanted to just piggyback off of, you know, other comments. Like I saw on Twitter where a reporter asked uh, Senator Tim Scott, uh, I'm just going to read it. So the reporter asked, do you find that concerning the president's refusal last night during the debate to condemn white supremacist groups? Senator Tim Scott replies, I think he misspoke. I think he should correct it. If he doesn't correct it, I guess he didn't misspeak. So I, I'm not, I'm not entirely, for one, it sounds like a Dr. Seuss riddle. Uh, second, I, I'm not entirely sure what Tim Scott is saying here. If you are seeing that Trump is not correcting himself by your own logic, he is a racist <laughs> because he's not misspeaking. He's 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 saying something that is truly coming from his own conscience, from his heart. And and I think that like it's frustrating. We're like we, we are continually seeing all of these moments where Trump has done things in relation to racism, but like they blame it on like his incompetence to just have the conversation, which like for some reason people think that that is like a, a scapegoat, a, a legitimate excuse. But yeah. I remember seeing people on Twitter talk about condemning, literally just saying I condemn white supremacy is the bare minimum of what it means to be an anti-racist. Like you, you're not really doing anything. Like, like Esther said, you, you could literally just lie so that they can move on to the next question. It's not asking a lot. And and that I think is 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 the most frustrating part is we always feel like we got to pivot when it comes to asking white people to handle racism in a more constructive way. Like as if just condemning it is the most appropriate thing that they can provide in the conversation. And the other thing that I noticed, like what Nick was talking about with the both sides thing, what we've seen Trump do with equivocating um, white supremacy with Antifa is something that I have seen happen more often from so many individuals that are right-leaning conservatives or Republicans. And that, once again, is is an attempt to kind of whitewash the severity of, of, of racism in our country, right? This, this is your attempt to say, we're going to put white supremacy in the same box as Antifa, in the same box yeah. as like black supremacist groups or Hebrew, Israel, Hebrew Israelites, like they're, they're training in the same kind of category. And when I see that approach, it, it really reveals that America has truly not reconciled with the significance that racism, anti-blackness has played in our country. 
Because if you think that these things are all on the same playing field, then you truly don't have a real understanding of how consequential racism has been, how, how tragic white supremacy has been in correlation to other people of color in our country. And that, if you see Trump try to push that tactic in and it's like, yo, I know we want to blame Trump, but like he's not the only one that has that belief. The, the, a, a both side is going to make him feel better about it. And it, it, it's like, it's, it's just not accurate. Historically, it's just not accurate. So thank you guys for sharing those thoughts in uh, this segment. Uh, we talked about a lot. And again, if you want to get any resources concerning this debate, please make sure you're looking up proper sources and please make sure you're making an informed uh, decision when you vote. And also a reminder, please vote. So as many of you guys know, um, the trailblazing RPG passed away. Um, just, it, it feels like it, it was just yesterday. And very quickly, despite her dying wish of not being replaced uh, before we get a new president or, or at least just until the election is decided, um, the GOP has gone ahead and, went and begun the process of nominating someone to take RBG's place. Her name is Amy Comey, Coney Barrett, excuse me. Um, she actually was elected to the uh, US Court of Appeals of the Seventh Circuit only in 2017. So they quickly moved her into this nomination process. And Christian, we know that you've written about her. You have actually watched her coronation, which you would have to tell us how that was because I did not watch. I don't think any of us here watched it, but thank you for making that sacrifice. Um, so please tell us a little bit about what this, what this situation is, what this nomination is and what are your feelings and thoughts behind it? Hopefully that's not too general. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this, this gambit with Amy Coney Barrett, which by the way, she is an extremely accomplished lawyer and judge. Her credentials are not in question. I would perhaps say that she's really smart and extremely conservatively smart. And she will, uh, she said it at her nomination uh, announcement that she pretty much carries on the legacy of the philosophy of the late Justice Anthony Scalia. But really this story begins then, when that justice died in March of February of 2016, four years ago. In a way that death, untimely death, was what gave us Donald Trump. Why? Because by then he was already the favorite to win the Republican nomination. However, there were many people, very conservative, very Christian, very evangelical, who weren't completely sold on this untested candidate who nonetheless was, you know, very immoral, very vulgar. Uh, he just not not even a Christian or a believer. But the moment that he pledged to fill his seat with someone just like him, it almost clinched his nomination with that segment of voters who were skeptical of a President Donald Trump. And to this day, many white evangelical Christians are just in the tank for Trump as a result of the hundreds and hundreds of judges he has put, not just on Supreme Court, but on the many lower courts, federal and appeals courts. And because the Republican agenda 
by and large is really unpopular with the American public. Maybe one law that the Republican-controlled Congress has passed in the last four years of Trump that people say, yes, that law has changed our lives for the better. You can't name one. Uh, maybe the 2017 tax cut was really popular with oh, very rich people. But that's about it. That's perhaps his chief legislative achievement. Because they have such a bad agenda and nothing that Congress, I mean, he can even get money for his wall through Congress because, you know, his policies are just not popular. Um, they turn to the courts. Their saving grace is the courts. And, uh, and, and the fact that you know, they may not pass a lot of laws, but they've ran through tons of judges, that ensures that Republican orthodoxy and ideologies uh, just are entrenched in our American both legal and constitutional system. Why is that important for many Republicans? And, and here Trump, Trump knows nothing about the law. He knows nothing about the rule of law. He knows nothing about the constitution. He's illiterate about all of these things. So he's, uh, and I said this in my piece that I wrote for New York Magazine on, on Amy Coney Barrett, I said, he's just a vessel. He's just this instrument of Republicans that they prop up and they just feed him names. Name these guys and these gals, by the way, the vast majority blindingly white uh, and male. Uh, that's the majority of his appointees to the courts. Uh, these people are true believers in Republican in the Republican causes, and they yeah, they're all of them are lawyers. All of them are very bright. Some of them are not really qualified, but they are true believers in that the Constitution and our laws should be interpreted according to the wishes of our Republican leaders. They won't say that with those words. They will use grand words like the original meaning of the framers of the Constitution uh, in order to strike down health care for the poor or in order to uh, strike down campaign finance regulations uh, that will uh, allow millions of dollars to go into our electoral system or to strike down the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They'll use like, well, this uh, the equal sovereignty of the states doesn't allow the Voting Rights Act to stay on the books. And they just strike down popular legislation. Uh, the reason Obamacare is once again before the Supreme Court is because conservatives have been extremely good, not at passing laws, but at challenging laws that are popular in the courts. And, uh, and for that reason is that, uh, you know, when Scalia died, a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have voted for Trump voted for him. And you're right. Uh, someone said it, I forget, earlier, that when Trump said elections have consequences, he said that in the context of the Supreme Court. And he said, hey, look, the reality is that we have the presidency, we have the Senate, and that's all you need in order to ram judges. So if we get a new, a new seat opened up, oh, man, we love Justice Ginsburg. She was a, a queen for equality and justice. Too bad. Elections have consequences. We have the power to fill her seat. And... So right now we're gonna troll the liberals by naming the complete opposite of what she was. Uh, yes, she's a woman. Yes, she is a mom. She is extremely accomplished. She has seven children, two of them adopted from Haiti. So there's very little to say to attack this woman that will make you seem like a terrible person. Uh, so, so she almost seemed unimpeachable. 
and and so we, we now we have this this situation where what are what's the opposition going to do? What are Democrats going to do with this vacancy? Can they really fight? That's a good question. That's an open question. There's going to be hearings now in October, and I'm really curious as to what their strategy is going to going to be because unfortunately Republicans do have the votes to put her through, and all you need is a bare majority. You need 50 votes, not even 51. You need 50 because. Mm-hmm. Mike Pence can break the tie if right. need and and if she has the votes, then she'll be the next associate justice of the Supreme Court. And that will mean, in effect, that Republicans will have six justices in the majority, and uh, and, and Democrats will only have three appointees, lonely appointees, who will be in dissent often. often. And now you can imagine if Biden gets elected and he has grand ambitions. Let's say he also takes over the Senate and he has full control of the federal government and he wants to pass a huge job relief act. He wants to bolster the Affordable Care Act. He wants to pass a version of the Green New Deal, even though he didn't uh, necessarily support it last night. But he wants to do all these revolutionary things to get the economy back on track and just to pass popular laws that will make people's lives better. Um, What's going to stand in his way? You guessed it. The courts. Supreme Court. Yeah. And they're not going to say Biden's policies are unpopular and we oppose them. No, they'll say, no, the Constitution says that the Commerce Clause of the, of, of the Constitution doesn't allow the government to pass legislation that, uh, and this is just a wild example, that, that, that everyone is required to wear a mask to access public spaces. I don't know, that's just, just an example. They'll come up with constitutional arguments and make them sound really dignified and serious simply for the purpose of sticking it to Biden and sticking it to the Democrats and their policies. And they're gonna accomplish it not through Congress, they're gonna accomplish it through the courts. And that's has been the project of Republicans for the past 50 years. They've been extremely, extremely good at it that's one thing Democrats haven't been good at is, is seizing on the courts as, as uh, an avenue for change, for progress. They're waking up to that reality now with Death Ginsburg. Mm. And, and yeah, the question is, what's going to happen? You know, will, will if, if, if Biden wins and he, he really gets a mandate to counteract all of these power grabs, will he uh, propose to expand the court, to pack it? to make it 11 or 13 justices. Who knows? That has been tried before. Uh, Biden is an institutionalist. He's very serious. He's not the kind of person that I see doing that. But who knows? Maybe the death of Ginsburg and and, and the ramming of Amy Coney Barrett will fire up liberals because a a 6-3 majority for decades, that's that's serious stuff. And unless... Clarence Thomas or Justice Samuel Alito retire or drop dead at some point uh, or really soon, Democrats are not going to get that majority back uh, in the foreseeable future. So unless they retaliate and the voters demand that from their future elected leaders, if that happens, then that's 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 what will determine the future of the Supreme Court. That was a really long rant. Hopefully it made some sense. But, uh, but if you have no, any good. I'd be happy to uh, to entertain any of them, or if you have any comments, by all means. Question, uh, yeah, I, those are really good. I have two quick questions for you. So, well, the first one is probably the more serious question, um, and I don't have the quotes in front of me, but you've probably seen them 
Um, some more conservative-leaning persons have been tweeting out Barrett's comments about Roe v. Wade because there's been a lot of talk about how you know her appointment could be the death knell for uh, an overturning of that, or or just attacks on abortion rights in general. And they're tweeting that those you know comments out essentially to say that you know maybe her position on that is not as extreme as everybody's trying to say that it is. So maybe you could give us some clarity on like your take on that. And my second thing, you know, I mean, people have talked about court packing, but I mean, my wild and crazy ideas, you know, people were talking about, you know, defunding the police. What about abolishing the Supreme Court? We just start from scratch. What do you think? <laughs> wow. We're going to have to go off the record for a second one. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that, that's really controversial. You know, obviously yeah. that ruling from 1973 established uh, the right of a woman to end her pregnancy. It's an extremely controversial decision to this day, but it has been, re has been reaffirmed multiple times by the Supreme Court. So in a sense, it's an entrenched precedent uh, in the law. And um, the reality is that once you have six people on the court, you can do whatever you want. You know what I mean? Right. You, you can smash precedent down. You can overrule it because, oh, we don't like it anymore. It's gone. And Republicans have been just foaming at the mouth to see Roe v. Wade go. Although I must say that although that's the line that they say, you know, we need to – they usually say we need to return this back to the states. We need to let the states decide. Before, right constitutional rights should apply across the board. You know what I mean? Uh, a right. woman can't have full autonomy in one state and then have to cross over to another state to get an abortion. This is independent of how you feel about the morality of abortion. This is about constitutional rights and how this should apply. Is this something that the constitution protects, yes or no? I happen to be of the very, uh, speaking constitutionally, of the very kind of, um, I honestly think it would be good for Roe v. Wade to be overruled, but not in the way that conservatives think. I think it should be modified not to rest, because I don't want to get too weedsy here, but the reason Roe v. Wade exists is because it was originally premised on the right to privacy. The, the, the Constitution doesn't protect the right to privacy. That word is not in the Constitution anywhere, but in the word liberty of the Constitution, for some reason, uh, the Supreme Court back in the 60s, before even Roe v. Wade, they found that the right to privacy protects a woman's right to have independent conversations with her doctor about her own choices in her life. Okay, that's Griswold, a really old case. Conservatives mm -hmm. never talk about overruling Griswold. Griswold is a huge case, very important, that set the right of a woman to access contraception. You know, and, mm -hmm. and conservatives never talk about, oh no, women shouldn't have a right to you know, contraception, but that's already the law of the land, you know, and, and, and the reason Roe v. Wade exists is because of the earlier ruling. Anyway, privacy has always been the cornerstone of Roe, but my view, and I think it, it's something that actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg would be happy with, would be if, if sorry, if, it would be if, if, uh, if Roe or the right of a woman to make decisions about her own body didn't so much rest on the right to privacy, which I kind of understand, but rather in the right to equality under the Constitution. Because one thing that's for certain about all these restrictions that states are passing to curtail abortion rights 
they say, yeah, we do it to protect life. But one thing these laws do is that they fall hardest on women. They fall hardest on poor women. They fall hardest on women of color. And if litigators and smart people who think about the Constitution thought of a woman's decision to do what she needs to do with her own health care or with her own body, if it, it were premised on the idea that no law should treat women differently, differently than men, because a law like that would squarely affect women, and it wouldn't affect men, I don't think. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if it, was, if it was premised on the right to equality, which is one thing that RBG was really big on, you know, that- Equal for, protection. Yeah. yeah, for men and women to be equal in the mm -hmm. eyes of the law. I think it would be a revolutionary thing, and actually I would support the Supreme Court, not necessarily reversing Roe, but remod modifying it to, to, to treat it as an equal rights thing for men and women. Because the reality is that abortion restrictions are passed by mostly by white male legislatures trying to uh, make decisions for women and, and, and mm. women have a say. Anyway, and, and so, if, so if the court were to do that, it will be a welcome thing. We're nowhere near from that happening. Um, and uh, yeah, we have what we have. Well, Roe v. overruled, I don't think immediately. The court likes to operate slowly. But, you know, just the fact that it's uh, it's palpable, that it's uh, a reality that is closer than it was literally two weeks ago, uh, is something that should get people, if anything, to vote and to get serious about the court. And if they, if, I mean, I, I keep saying that if Biden has, uh, you know, a super strong mandate to the extent that he trashes Trump in every single respect, not just at mm -hmm. the presidential election, but also in the Senate, to the to the point that Democrats do have a mandate to do things that are important for the nation's future. Future, if that includes, you know, expanding the court or instituting deep reforms to the Supreme Court, bring it on, do it, you know. And um, anyway, as as to your second question of abolishing the court. <laughs> I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a good idea, but I do think that the court it has become too important for our politics. The Supreme Court should be the least powerful branch. Yeah. And the fact that you know a single justice's life can truly send the nation into a partisan frenzy uh, yeah. during an election year. Any other healthy democracy, other countries from around the world look at what's happening with the Ginsburg seat and they think that's bonkers. Like, that's going to happen. They're like, you're just yeah. all the time, and our democracy is not teetering on the brink. The fact that our democracy is teetering on the brink because of the life of a justice who happened to be really old, by the mm -hmm. way, woman should be at 87 still working. That woman should have been, you know, retired or resting comfortably somewhere. and a younger justice should have taken her place. But the fact that mm -hmm. you know, we have this, uh, just all these personalities on the court that literally can mean the life or death of a constitutional right, of a statute, of, of, of something that the people has decided, you know, it's, it's huge and it's consequential. And I think if Congress can find ways to, not to delegitimize or to abolish the court, but to make it less powerful than it currently is, for yeah. example, by passing term term limits on the justices, you can only serve for eighteen years, and that's it. Or you know, 
justices are supposed to, uh, I don't know, for example, there isn't a law right now that says what will happen to a justice's personal papers the moment they die. They can do whatever they want with it. You know what I mean? There's no laws mandating recusal for the justices. They're very, they set their own rules for many things. You know, if Congress mm -hmm. reined in the Supreme Court a little bit more and, and imposed the legislative will of the people on these judges, I think, you know, it would help to just decrease its power and actually packing the court, you know, making it 13 justices, 15 justices, 21 justices. In Chile, I'm originally from South America, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court has 21 justices. And when someone retires or dies, you know, democracy doesn't suffer, you know, so, oh, whatever, yeah. you know, you know uh, we'll choose whoever. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so to the extent that they can think of ways to just take the pressure off and the temperature off whenever there's a vacancy, I think that would be a welcome thing. Because uh, unfortunately right now, for an entire election to be affected by the composition of the Supreme Court, you know, the American people have bigger worries right now. Yeah. They want to be able to put food on the table. They want to be able to be healthy. They want to be able to vote safely. Uh, you know, they want a working uh Postal service. They want a census that is not racist and that includes everybody. You know, uh, those are things that Congress should be working on right now, passing legislation for the people, not taking up a whole bunch of oxygen and a whole bunch of legislative hearings just to sit a Supreme Court justice. I mean, it, it's just yeah. insane that less uh, or a little over a month before the election, Congress is just sucking up energy with this nominee it's it's unfortunate and actually believe it or not i think that judge barrett is allowing herself to be used for this that's something about her the fact that yeah he is accepting this nomination to become partisan warfare and that she's receiving it from a president who just last night wasn't willing to condemn white supremacy i think it says something about uh her you know uh the Bible says, you know, um, what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And I think you can make an argument that she is willing to sacrifice a lot just for the sake of a seat. Uh, and, yeah. and the American public have a right to question those motivations because uh, a, a self-respecting person who cares about the rule of law, who cares about the future of our democracy will say, you know what, Mr. President? I thank you very much. I'm honored that you picked me and that you decided that I would be a good person for this decision. But I think, first of all, that you're being a hypocrite because this was not your position four years ago. And two, that I don't want to subject myself to this. You have bigger things to do right now. And thank you, but no thank you. How about we wait? And uh, the fact that she didn't do that, that should tell you where her priorities lie. So. Yeah, especially when in 2016, she herself said the exact opposite and was on the news saying yeah, I've seen that, that clip yeah and then she yeah. she only is very aware of the fact that Supreme Court seats as she put it and I quoted this in in the piece that I wrote from you mag they shift dramatically the balance of power on the mm -hmm. court. she's keenly aware of the power dynamics of a Supreme Court nomination so I wouldn't be surprised that she herself is a political animal that she is someone who is it sounds terrible, but she's just power hungry. And and if yeah. people 
And I think if Democrats somehow can make that case to the public and, and pose very pointed questions during her hearing, not so much at her qualifications, not so much at her faith or her womanhood, all of those things I think uh, would be dumb and unproductive if they focus on the things that matter, how a Supreme Court nominee is willing to basically throw a wrench into the final moments of an election and be a willing party to that. I think yeah. that could truly, uh, you know, perhaps shift public perception. And in the end, it's the people that decide. I have to just come in super quick and, and just really affirm what you said because I think it was disappointing for me to see how partisanship is really in all three branches. And just like what we've kind of been saying, we should, you know, we definitely expect the Supreme Court to be a different kind of entity. And to see someone that's nominated not really acknowledge that and essentially just go with what I guess her party is wanting to do, I think that even further politicizes the Supreme Court. It just seems like it's just it, it's another game in what it we're doing in this election. It's so quickly and just so rushed. It's almost as if she's mm -hmm. being imposed on everyone else. Yeah. Now, I, I use this analogy when mm -hmm. I covered the Kavanaugh confirmation as well. His 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 confirmation felt like a wrecking ball was thrown at the Supreme Court. And 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 honestly, you know. To, to, to the extent that this nomination also is just rammed through, uh, you know, or catapult onto onto the court, I think you know that that itself could, could could do damage to an institution that at least it attempts to stay above partisanship. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, Christian, I know we have to let you go, but thank you so much for coming on the show. I do remember that this is your second yes. time on your show, and you're actually our first guest. It was our second episode, I think, when you came on, or second or third. But we're so glad you got to spend this time with us, and we're so grateful for the words that you've been writing. Uh, Christian, thank you, thank you so much. Me. Please take care. Keep, keep up the great work, guys. And, yeah, and thank you, bro. Say hello to the fam, man. Yeah, keep uh, keep pushing people to, to vote because really that's all that matters now. Absolutely. Definitely. Okay, guys. Peace. You too. So, guys, super quick, uh, before we close, we're going to hit Trump's taxes. And then I think we will also try to uh, hit a quick PMI after that. So do me a favor if you can. Let's try to make sure we keep our uh, responses. Mike? You definitely are someone that has experience with taxes, either evading them or paying them on time. Who knows? But I... <laughs> you got addressnets, bro. Come on, bro. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just drop, kidding. drop my social in the comments, bro. <laughs> but Mike, can you walk us through what we've learned about Trump's taxes this week from that big story in the New York Times? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Chris Wallace, for the moderation. Appreciate that. The, the time limits. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot in there. It, the New York Times dropped a bomb. Uh, it was the day before the debate Monday. Uh, they did a lot of uh, reporting into Trump's taxes. Um, I'm actually going to drop a, a New York magazine uh, article in the comments because it'll it'll give you a good summary on um 
you know, some key takeaways from it. I mean, the New York Times article is great. I, I personally like summaries because, you know, I just didn't really have time to read through all the stories. So I'll just give you all some quick, a quick rundown of some of the key things that you may have heard of or, or that's within the reporting. Uh, so first of all, of course, we heard that uh, Trump has paid $0 in federal income taxes in 10 of the last 15 years. So, I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? He only paid $750 in 2016 and 2017. Uh, the average U.S. taxpayer uh, paid $12,200 in federal taxes in those years, just to give you um, a comparison there. Uh, it, well, there's another note here. In 2016, Trump paid $129,250 more to Stormy Daniels than the USA government. So I thought that was an interesting thing we should keep in mind. Um, one thing somebody noted actually is that Abraham Lincoln paid more income tax in 1864. He paid $1,279.13 than billionaire, quote unquote, Donald Trump in 2016. Again, $750. But people are trying to go deeper under the numbers. Uh, some folks have been talking about the fact that his presidential bid was looking more and more like a ploy to bolster his fledgling empire. And I mean, he really looked at this as a business opportunity. There's been a lot of reporting on that. Go ahead, Jordan. You want to say something? Yeah, I do just want to say real quick on the his his presidency helping his business. I did also read that um, he would host a lot of government officials at his hotels, at his resorts, and it wasn't cheap. So he made a substantial yeah. amount of money that way too. Yeah, absolutely. And so one nugget on that, uh, you know, the Times reported that monthly receipts at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. grew from $3.7 million in de December 2016, shortly after it opened, to $5.4 million in January 2017. Ironically, there was an inauguration in January 2017 that I'm sure you all remember. And $6 million in 2018. There's also reporting on how uh, profits on Mar-a-Lago grew dramatically since his presidency. Uh, so there's a lot there. Uh, he wrote off $70,000 in haircuts as business ex business expenses. Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, there's some folks that are wondering, were those haircuts or hair plugs? But allegedly, I can't confirm or deny that. Don't sue me. And the other really big thing is the IRS is auditing a $72.9 million tax refund that he got he got basically $73 million in a tax refund. Um, uh, you know, Michael Cohen has come out and, and talks about how they had private conversations, you know, laughing about how he got over on them. Um, and, and this, the, the IRS actually started um, auditing him on, on this since, you know, back in 2011. So he's sort of been evading that uh, for a while. Um and they also talked a lot about how, you know, the apprentice and his fortune from there um, helped to underwrite and boost some of his businesses. And then the last thing I'll say is that the really um, troubling thing that folks, uh, you know, the Times was looking at is the fact that he has an exorbitant amount of debt, uh, which is coming due uh, definitely within what would be another term of his presidency. One example of that is that he owes you know Deutsche Bank hundreds of millions of dollars, um, 
and and the fact is that he him winning re-election would also be him avoiding uh, the $421 million in loans he's personally responsible for loans which are coming due within the next four years. And so there is concern about uh, how he could utilize his presidency or how he's already been utilizing his presidency to gain personal wealth, to hold those uh, lenders at bay, um, and to continue just laundering money through the Oval Office. And so uh, I don't know if he's working on, you know, a reboot of Breaking Bad or what, but my man has got a lot of money tied up in these streets. And so, yeah, I, I love to hear you all's thoughts. I mean, there's there's a lot to it, a lot to unpack. Essentially, um, he's a tax dodger. And w- whenever somebody wants to hide something, there's obviously a reason why they want to hide it. He's been hiding his taxes for years, you know what I mean? Oh. And so it's like, you know, it could easily have proved all of these false things he's talking about, about being an amazing businessman, as opposed to showing how much the millions and millions of dollars that he's lost. Um, it's just like, it's, it's unconscionable. Um, so yeah, love to hear y'all's thoughts. I just have a question. Is this impeachment? Is this not impeachable? Like, if he gets reelected, could we try for Well, I, I think, you know, there have been some, you know, talks about that. But I think that, um, you know, it, it's sort of tricky because I think what could really lead to more of a, a level of, well, he could be impeached over it, is if you do start to show some clear connections of him using his presidential office for personal financial gain. Like, I think the tax returns are sort of the first step in the process. You can kind of make some correlations and say, okay, well, like for example, the hotel in DC was growing because he'll, he'll make the argument that, well, I became president and people just wanted to get closer to me. That didn't personally benefit me. I, I didn't use the office purposefully to get those monetary benefits. It's just a coincidence. But if there's a deeper investigation and, you know, the Senate, you know, opens up an investigation into any potential connections between the use of his office and monetary gain, that obviously is illegal and he could be impeached for that. And so I think that there definitely could be some potential as people dig deeper into what these returns actually show us. And what a lot of reporters are doing is they're trying to connect the dots of a lot of reporting. They've heard about financial gains and now that they have his actual financials to sort of match up to what they've heard in other sources, I think people are just trying to connect the dots between the two. And so that could be forthcoming uh, in the future potentially, but I don't know that we're there yet right now from what I've read. So even if, so I guess I'm, so even if, so sorry, I don't think I understand mm-hmm. enough of how this works. So his, in in their tax the tax returns that they that they um, revealed and put out, he has not done anything illegal. Um. Well, I, th- that's the reporting hasn't said that conclusively. You know, they haven't come out and said he's done this thing, which is illegal. I think what they have been able to say from from what they've seen in his returns is that this raises a lot of questions and um, there is an, an, there's an investigate. I'm trying to remember 
There is an investigation, I think, that's going to be on. Well, the IRS is investigating what's going on here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, which ironically, of course, you know, him being the president, you know, there's some some discussions around, well, will he have some effect on the IRS's investigation into these financials now in a more deep way, which there, there, there could be that there's been some, you know, stonewalling that's been going on. So I think that the, you know, once the IRS sort of comes to a conclusion on what's going on here, we'll be able to know, okay, he did something illegal or he didn't or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Hmm. I do remember his, what was it? It was his kids. His, he, he put his kids down. Yeah, I'm sorry. I remember, forgot that he paid Monica Trump a consult, like consultation fee for mm-hmm. work that, uh, that she was doing in her, in the normal course of her job. And he, he wrote that off as a business expense, but it, but what people are saying is that that was actually a gift to her, but mm. he, he wrote it off as a business expense for her to consult for him when it was actually a gift of $747,622. Man, so, 700. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> That's a pretty big I, gift. <laughs> this is like, it, I think what's so wild about just taxes and tax code in general and I was listening to the 1A when they were talking about this, is that tax code just has a, it has a history of not being updated for modern times mm-hmm. and honestly being a tool for partisanship, really. Yeah. And just building, you know, and it's just, they literally write in tax codes, tax, tax laws to benefit specific groups of people at a time. And then those things aren't updated. They stay there. So when Trump even said, you know, you guys wrote the tax bill, I'm only, you know, playing essentially playing the game that you guys created. He's low key correct. And I think if anything, this just needs to let us, this just needs to communicate to us that tax code needs to change because the fact that this thing was for even, even for you, Mike, the, the New York times report, I tried to read it. It's so big. It's so complicated because tax code is big. Tax code is complicated. And we have to read synopses of what the whole report was saying. So tax code needs to be simplified so the American people can actually understand what it is and needs to actually start working for us. So people like Trump can't keep using the system to their benefit and just and getting away with it for years and years. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty crazy. And and getting back to like, for example, back on the consulting fee thing, he actually uh, the Times reported that he wrote off twenty six million dollars in unexplained consulting fees from 2010 to 2018. And the Ivanka Trump instance is one instance of that. Um, and, and he filed that actually when um you know, when around the time when Ivanka was joining his his White House staff in 2017. So it's just like the timing of it, as well as it's clear that he was using this consulting fee tactic to be able to write things off as business expenses, to not be charged tax on it, to, you know, move money around or whatever the case may be. 
Um, so to your point, Jordan, it, it can be a little bit hard to follow, especially when, you know, you're dealing with hundreds of dollars as opposed to millions like me. And so like, I'm not used to having to do all this different type of stuff to, to move stuff around. But uh, I think there'll definitely be more fallout as things continue to progress. And I would, I would probably also add um, that uh, the, the reporters that were looking into it showed that even they were running into these kind of roadblocks where they would see these large amounts of funds being exchanged um, and it would only tell them the institution or, or the organization of where the money came from, not the person not the real usage, not like a, a clear description of like, what exactly is this, right? And that I think is also raising more questions, right? And and I think that's probably why they're not going to come out and say, this is illegal, this is legal, um, because the, the answers aren't being revealed. And I think that is where more pressure, I would say, has to be placed on Trump um, because he is the only one that can kind of fill those holes in. Unless another source comes out and reveals more information, but we've already seen how that even that has been politicized and, and turned into partisanship where people are like trying to equivocate like the pers- the source is just as bad as Trump's actions and yada, yada, yada. I think it, it truly is just going to have to come down to that information is going to have to be released because like we've like we've seen those roadblocks are just going to keep coming up and we'll never get a chance to actually get the full extent of what these large sums of money are going toward or who they're coming from this is um i guess right now it's not they haven't proven that this is explicitly related to trump's trump and his taxes quite yet but there is a really interesting podcast right now from from BuzzFeed, I think. But um, it's called Suspicious Activity, something like that. But essentially, they are making the case that right now, there's all these banks that are um, that are reporting all these suspicious amounts of money being like going through their banks. And they're saying like, this money is suspicious, like it is it is likely tied to some sort of criminal activity, etc. But it's being reported directly to the government. But what this the reporting in this podcast is based on covering is that actually a lot of this, a lot of our own elected officials are all tied up in this, and there is so much money in out it within. I I mean, like illegitimate um, markets that it's actually funding our regular economy to the point where our elected officials actually have very little um, incentive to make any sort of real reforms or handle it because the Mm. economy is actually the same as the regular economy. So, wow. Wow. That's surprising to hear, but it is one of those things that instantly makes perfect sense. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Well, all right, guys. Thank you so much for talking about taxes. Can't wait to uh, file them in the coming months. And um, actually, no, hopefully we get good tax returns. I actually don't know how the stimulus check is going to affect that. 
that's just a stress that popped into my mind. Probably it won't. So before we close, we're going to be doing our PMIs. And as you have guessed, PMI stands for Piqued My Interest. That's where we talk about a movie, book, TV show, piece of music, even a funny YouTube video of cats that you saw that really made you think that, of course, piqued your interest. Let's start with Esther. Esther, what do you have for us this week? Uh, yes, I just started a book called The Skies Belong to Us. It is about the insane amount of airplane hijackings that took place in the 60s and 70s and talking about um, the politics essentially behind that that sort of fueled that and were happening behind the scenes. It's just a fantastic book. The, the reporting, the writing is just great. It's written like, like you feel like you're reading a novel, but there's also a lot of... Um, really great content in it. Also sheds a lot of light on how they were very reluctant to put in place a lot of the, um, like the, the everything that happened after 9-11 and all of that that happened with, air, with, with airports and planes and flying with one incident related to, and obviously there was like lots of racism involved in that. They had sometimes 40 plane hijackings in a single year and still would refuse to put in place security restrictions like this solely because of money. So it's just a great book. Everybody should read it. There's a lot of great insight in it. Thank you. Logan, could you share next for us, please? Um, sure. Uh, there's a documentary that came out on Netflix called The Social Dilemma that everyone's going crazy about. Um, I do not plan to watch it, but I've heard that it's, it's really good. It's supposed to get you off your phone and social media, which I have no desire doing. So <laughs> if you're if you're interested in understanding how bad social media is for you, watch the social dilemma. If you're not and you just want to stay naive and ignorant, then just do what I'm doing and tell people to watch it um, because I hear it's really good. This is a peak my interest first, uh, sharing something that you had not peaked with at all. Uh, Mike, could you share with us next, please? Yes, for sure. Um, I'm going to share something that piqued my interest and it is, if I can get to it, um, we are having our, our vote week here at AU next week, October five to nine. We getting people registered as Michigan residents. Um, this is a very nonpartisan effort. We want you to exercise your, uh, your civic duty and, and, and come through. Uh, we'll have lots of different, um, activities and things of that nature throughout the week to to get things ramped up. So I'll talk to you all about how it's going the middle of next week. Uh, but definitely, if you're here, if you're, if you're in the AU community, you're watching, come through. We'll get you set up and registered to vote. Uh, so yeah, that's what's piqued my interest. And we are, um, and shout out to the spell checkers who were getting on us about spelling peaked wrong. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't intentional the first day we did it, I just typed it quick. Y'all are clearly, you know, hooked on phonics, so good for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so vote week, come through, get registered, vote, vote, vote. Excellent. Adrian, could you share next for us, please? Yeah. Um, so this is is from someone that I have shared before. Um, John Oliver, last week tonight, he did a phenomenal episode on just the current political state. Um, he talks about the Supreme Court and he talked about 
the filibuster in electoral college. And he did a great job at essentially just displaying a timeline for how these conversations um, have been around for a very long time. Like the abolishing the electoral college um, is, is a conversation that was in Congress, like going as back to like the 50s and 60s um, and things like the filibuster, abolishing that, all of these conversations that have been essentially been labeled as these like radical new ideas that are being thrown so that um, the current Democratic uh, Party can just kind of withhold power. Um, he did a phenomenal job of showing that like that's it's simply not the case. It, it's something that has gone up and the issues that we're facing right now have happened before. Um, and so if you're looking on history being shown in a way that helps you make sense out of what's happening right now with the Electoral College, Supreme Court, and the filibuster. Um, that is a phenomenal episode. His, epi his episodes air on HBO, but they upload them on YouTube. So if you just go on YouTube and search John Oliver, um, his most recent episode is, is gonna show up right there. Thank you. So before we close out, my peaked interest or Rather, what piqued my interest this week is an album by one of my favorite bands called Fleet Foxes. They are a band from Logan's side of the country, actually. And their new band, their new uh, album, excuse me, is called Shore. And it really is an album that is a celebration of life in the face of death. And it is something that has kind of helped me develop peace in this very chaotic and stressful time. So if you are looking for some peace, I definitely recommend those collection of songs. So guys, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Affirmative Interaction. Uh, we just might be making an episode right after the debate. I believe the vice president debate is next Tuesday. Am I correct? It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. So... Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see you guys next week. Maybe we'll try to do something special for that. But until then, thank you so much for <laughs> thank you so much for missing my PMI, and we will see you all next week. Bye bye. <laughs>